Well, take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 6. We took a bit of an interruption last week and we're going to get back on track here. Talking about how to pray in power. While you're finding Matthew 6, we'll be beginning at verse 19. I want to read to you from Psalm 28. Psalm 28, verse 7 says, Yahweh is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exalts and with my song I shall thank him. My heart trusts in him. Trust here in Psalm 28 is a Hebrew word which means to have confidence. It means to be secure, to have security. It means to have dependence upon the Lord. And at first glance, I think that the concept of trusting the Lord is something that seems familiar to us, seems clear to us, but it's actually a gloriously rich topic in Scripture, and it's one worth exploring. And so today, as we come close to the end of our series, How to Pray in Power, I want to talk about the power of trust, the power of trust in prayer And before we get specific to our text in Matthew 6, I want to draw our thoughts tightly around this idea by just giving some truths about trusting the Lord. Some truths about trusting the Lord, some introductory realities. So let me give you five truths to get our thoughts wound around this. First of all, trusting the Lord begins with the gospel. Trusting the Lord must begin with the gospel. Even an unbeliever might say, and and especially if they know you go to church and they think it'll be impressive to you, they they might say and, and even believe at some level, well, I'm just trusting God to help me with this problem. And they might have a genuine belief in that. But that makes a faulty assumption. That assumption is, is that they have a reconciled relationship with God in which God would treat them like children. They don't have that relationship. Genuine trust in the Lord must begin with the gospel. That is the starting point. For example, in Luke 18, Jesus told the parable of two men who went to the temple to pray, one a self-righteous Pharisee, the other a repentant tax collector. And you recall that the self-righteous Pharisee prayed to God, boasting about all of his good works. But the context of Jesus telling this parable is so important. Luke 18, 9 says, He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Trusting God must begin with trusting Him at salvation, with imputing to you the righteousness of Christ. God is thoroughly unimpressed and, yea, even offended when an unbeliever says, I'm just trusting God to help me with this problem. Why would you do that? That's a faulty assumption. Romans 3.21 says, Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if someone says, I trust God, but has not trusted God for the gift of imputed righteousness through Christ, they haven't actually trusted God. There's just words. There's a second truth. Trust is a disposition of confidence. Trust is a disposition of confidence. We understand the basic idea of trust. We have people in our lives that we trust. 
But no one in our lives is 100% trustworthy. Why? I just read it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you will be disappointed at some level. But trusting God is a disposition. It's an inclination. It's an outlook. Or, or if I could put it this way, it's your official position that God is worthy of our confidence, that He will always do the right thing. Now, a moment ago, I read Psalm 28, 7. I want you to notice what the psalmist does. You can just listen. First, he gives a declaration of theology proper. Yahweh is my strength and my shield. This is a propositional statement of truth about God. But second, he says that as a result of that truth, as a result of truth about God, my heart trusts in him. That's his disposition. That's his outlook. That's his official position. That's his inclination. And now there's three results. He says, I am helped. My heart exalts. And with my song, I shall thank him. So trust is a disposition of confidence in God. Here's a third truth. Genuine trust is rooted in the sovereignty of God. Genuine trust is rooted in the sovereignty of God. Now we've proven the sovereignty of God in countless messages in the past months and years. A while back I even simply just read to you verses from every book of the Bible that assert God's sovereignty. Now without diving headlong into the doctrine of sovereign election, let me just say this, that if someone says, I believe God is sovereign and I believe in total free will that salvation is man's choice, that's a logical contradiction. You're saying, I believe in God's sovereign totally except for this exception. That's a logical contradiction. But the phrase that even those who do not believe in God's sovereign choice and salvation use, particularly when faced with trying circumstances. Here's the phrase that, that we hear, God is in control. Now let me get a little picky about God is in control. Because if you believe in total free will, if you believe that salvation is man's choice, God is not actually in control, is he? The only conclusion can be that what the phrase actually means, and, and this is really the, the colloquial meaning that when somebody who doesn't believe in God's sovereign choice and salvation says God is in control, what they're really saying is God is able to respond. God is able to react. God is able to make adjustments that no matter what problem comes in your life, God is there. He's got it. And he's, he's able to, to, to catch you as you fall. Well, the problem is, that's actually a heretical position called process theology. Sometimes it's called neoclassical theology. It says that God is inside time and he's changeable and that God is actually adjusting to your life circumstances. That while he's really good at responding to terrible things that happen in your life, he's not actually having unilateral control over everything. And so actual trust in the Lord, biblical trust in the Lord must be rooted in the sovereignty of God. Now, to be fair, I believe at their heart that those believers who even hold to total free human choice and salvation, when push comes to shove in a life crisis, they yearn for God to be totally in control. They yearn for the sovereignty of God. Not just the sense of God responding well. Listen, if you just read what the Bible says about the sovereignty of God, it's stunning in its scope. I'll just read you two verses. Lamentations 3, 37 and 38. 
Who is there who speaks and it happens unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good go forth? That's stunning. Here's a fourth truth. Genuine trust is not conjured up emotion. Genuine trust is not conjured up emotion. If you are standing on the median, on White Lane, as many people like to do apparently, and a car goes zooming by at 85 miles an hour, as the other people really like to do apparently, and that car misses you by three inches, what's going to happen? Your heart rate goes up, you begin to sweat, your legs may even begin to shake. You have emotion. You have a response. Does that mean you're not trusting the Lord? No, that means you're having an emotional response. But trusting the Lord is not a conjured up emotion. Here are some phrases I hear. Perhaps you've said them. I've probably said them. Trust the Lord because he's got this. That's still the basic idea that God is able to react well and therefore you should have the emotion of contentment. Or how about this phrase? Trust the Lord to be with you in your greatest time of need. Trust the Lord to be with you in your greatest time of need. And you you might say, Steve, you're kind of attacking truth here. Well, this is really the best that contemporary cultural Christianity has to offer. And it is true. Trust the Lord because he'll be with you in your greatest time of need. But all it really asserts is the very basic idea of God's presence. That's all it says. And actually, this can run the risk of reducing God to what one theologian calls an emotional support God. It almost can sound like you're the center of the action and God is just coming alongside as your divine assistant. But ultimately, remember that trust is not a conjured up emotion. It's the disposition. It's the belief in. It's the theological position of confidence in God. In other words... It may give some comfort to assert the basic truth of the presence of God, God's omnipresence, that God is with you in your greatest time of need, but it's much more effective to believe God is not only with me in my greatest time of need, God sovereignly caused my greatest time of need, and God will sovereignly work all things together for my good with the bigger purpose of His glory in my greatest time of need. Now that's theology. Or if I could put it this way, If you believe that the ultimate purpose of your suffering or your need is to trust in Him for God to glorify Himself, then that renders total confidence outside the realm of emotion, regardless of what your emotions do. And yes, your emotions can be a natural response to terrible circumstances or terrible news. In the midst of that, though, you still have the disposition, you still have the position, the confidence, the belief that God is not only with me in my greatest time of need, God sovereignly caused my greatest time of need, and God will sovereignly work all things together for my good with the bigger purpose of His own glory. You've probably heard those four truths. Let me give you a fifth that's not so popular in terms of not so well known. Trust is an expectation of covenant loyalty. Trust in the Lord is an expectation of covenant loyalty. In Exodus 16, God instituted the giving of manna, this miraculous food raining down from heaven. 
But part of the purpose is explicitly stated in Exodus 16, 4. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether or not they will walk in my law. What was the test? Part of the test was that God commanded them to not try to save any for the next day but to trust Him to rain bread from heaven the next day. Listen, that's, that's pretty tough. You think about it. If, put it in our terms, if God rained money on you enough for the next day, or for that day, how tempting is it to stick a fiver in your wallet just in case? And if what happened to the man that happens to your money, it's full of worms and, and it's terrible. It was a test. Why? Because trusting the Lord is an expectation of covenant loyalty. Matthew 21 records the chief priests and the elders of Israel challenging Jesus and asking by what authority was Jesus teaching the people and by what authority was he healing? Matthew 21, 24, Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source, from heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? By the way, just a little side note, in their genius, the the greatest men of Israel came and they said, we figured out the answer. It's, I don't know. And so they didn't know how to answer this. But this is the question. Then why didn't you believe him? They already figured it out. They already knew that they had no faith in Christ, no faith about the message that John the Baptist had preached about Christ, and they proved themselves as those who didn't desire to be part of, of the coming new covenant in Christ. Why? They did not believe. Trust is an expectation of covenant loyalty. Peter puts it this way. He declared that the suffering, genuine believer must trust the Lord. 1 Peter 4.19 Therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God must entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing good. That if you trust God because you're part of the new covenant, then the way you demonstrate that trust is doing good in spite of suffering. So trusting the Lord begins with the gospel. It's a disposition of confidence. Genuine trust is rooted in the sovereignty of God. Genuine trust is not a conjured up emotion. And trust is an expectation of covenant loyalty. Now I wanted to lay that foundation for us because the text we're going to examine today deals very precisely with the interaction between trusting God and money. And I'm going to make the application for us in prayer. Now, why would we relate this to prayer? I'll rely on the fact that this section is very close in proximity to Jesus' teaching on prayer just a few verses earlier. The specific topic of money is very closely associated with prayer and with trusting the Lord. And so to help organize our thoughts I want to tie these together and give you three types of prayers to strengthen your trust in the Lord. Three types of prayers to strengthen your trust in the Lord. I think there's clearly a very big connection between trust and prayer. And so we're going to make those here. The first type of prayer, pray for treasure opportunities. Pray for treasure opportunities. I want to read the text and then we'll walk through them one at a time. Verse 19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. 
But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in their steel. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. What I've just read are three related but independent pericopes, little self-contained sections, all related to trusting the Lord and the wealth of this world, and yet each with a slightly different angle. So the first little section, verses 19 through 21 Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus now coins this very familiar phrase to us, treasures in heaven. That was his idea, his original phrase. The context is speaking primarily of money, of material possessions. The end of verse 24, you cannot serve God and wealth. Jesus says, do not store up. This is actually just the verb form of treasure. So we could say, do not treasure up treasures for yourself. It's the idea of stockpiling, of hoarding wealth that has no purpose, no use, no intended consumption whatsoever. It's to store up wealth for the purpose of feeling safe, feeling secure. Uh, Just to be very clear, Jesus is not equating Poverty with spirituality, the Bible recognizes the right to own possessions. It's a right given by God, which is the basis, by the way, for how society functions properly. But property and the acquisition of material things and money is meant to be used, it's meant to be enjoyed, it's meant to be given. For example, Paul commands in 1 Timothy 6.17, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty or to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So the contrast that Jesus gives here is that treasures on earth are never fully secured. Never. They are where moth and rust destroy. And what is that speaking of? Well, wealth could be accumulated at least partly in the form of very expensive clothing. And yet moths could simply eat it. You could spend years saving up for this really expensive uh, 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 blouse or shirt or outfit. And you open the little chest you keep it in and a bunch of moths just finished lunch. And there it is. It's gone. Rust here is not the Greek word literally for rust. That's a different word. This just means the eating. It means something that's decaying, that's rotting, that what you thought you had has degraded. This is an important reminder that there are no fully certain earthly investments. It it, it might be eaten, it might be destroyed, it might be crumbled. Many, many years ago, I got to help a friend doing a a, a remodel of a house and we were cleaning out this house that had been left in horrible condition with piles of trash by previous renters. And as we're cleaning trash, I found this diamond And first of all, it never occurred to me that somebody who trashes their rental house probably doesn't have a diamond that's that big. 
and I asked the guy who hired me, hey, what can I do with this? And he said, well, I don't know, keep it, you know. So I took it home. All I could think about was the test I was going to do. I got my hammer out. I put it on concrete and I smashed it and it went into a million pieces and all my plans of independent wealth were out the window at that moment. That's decay. Oh, I thought I had a diamond and now I just have dust. According to verse 20, treasure in heaven is impervious to earthly threats. It is where thieves do not break in and steal. Burglary was common in the ancient Near East. Break in is actually literally to dig. And it can mean to dig through a a mud wall or as lots of families did, they might uh, bury their greatest treasures under their floor. And if they're not home or they're on a trip, uh, all a thief has to do is come in and get his shovel and start digging. Instead, Jesus commands that the true follower of Christ is treasuring up treasures, creating wealth, as it were, in heaven, a place where every deposit is guaranteed to be there when you arrive. Now, Jesus doesn't explicitly say that the wealth accrued in heaven is money as such, but the treasure of heaven is portrayed as being saved up in the same way that you save up money. Now, this passage here, Jesus doesn't give us a one, two, three set of steps to save up treasure in heaven, but he gives you the key and the attitude that gives you heavenly treasure. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is a monumental concept. Why is this so important? By actively placing treasure in heaven, your heart will be there as well. In other words, your mind will be thinking about eternal things. Your thoughts will be looking upward. Heaven will be all the more real because you're aware that what you're doing on this earth is having a direct impact in heaven. All the more anticipated. And when all of that is happening, when you're doing things sacrificially that creates treasure in heaven and your heart is now there and you're looking upward and you're thinking more and more heavenly thoughts, you're obeying Colossians 3 to think on things that are above What is that called? That's called trusting the Lord. You're trusting Him. Let me use the obvious example of giving to the gospel work. The one who's greedy and gives much less than he's able to do is is only robbing themselves of heavenly focus, robbing themselves of the delights of looking beyond the pain and suffering of this life. Never once in heaven has God wrung his hand saying the gospel's not going to go forth unless these people give more. No, you're robbing yourself. Let the one who gives sacrificially, the one who gives with joy and delight, who gives knowing that this gift is a deposit into the very treasury of heaven because I'm giving to the work of the king to build the kingdom. That sets your heart ablaze for heaven and for eternal things. And it empowers a very tangible trust in the Lord. Don't misunderstand, it's fine and it's good to look to your financial provision to be responsible, but if that's done at the expense of heavenly priorities, if that's done at the expense of kingdom deposits into the first universal bank of heaven, you're just robbing yourself. You're robbing yourself of joy, you're also robbing yourself of the ability to actually trust the Lord in this life. You want to increase your trust in the Lord? Instead of waiting passively for opportunities to come to you, pray actively for tangible opportunities to build up treasure in heaven. 
If you get used to looking for opportunities to give some of the treasure on earth in favor of heavenly treasure, what are you doing? You're exercising faith. You're living by faith. You're exercising that you, you truly believe that amazingly God will still feed you tomorrow. Even if you give away what you might have spent on yourself. I've had the privilege of standing in this pulpit for many years now and I'll make an assertion from my experience as a pastor. The person who keeps a family budget and the last item on the budget after everything else is filled in, after everything that the world tells you you're supposed to have, that after that infomercial you saw at 2 a.m. now becomes another budget item that when the very last item on the budget is kingdom treasure, my experience has been that that's someone who hasn't really embraced actively trusting the Lord. Many families in the church at Philippi gave to support the Apostle Paul, even to their own hurt. In fact, Paul had to encourage them. In Philippians 4.19, My God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Why do they have to tell them that? Because they were giving away food money. They were giving away money they needed because their beloved pastor was in prison. Listen, praying for treasure opportunities is so spiritually healthy for you. Why? Because it's a, it's a palpable and a noticeable way to actively trust the Lord. To trust Him on purpose. First type of prayer Pray for treasure opportunities. Here's a second type of prayer. Pray for clear vision. Pray for clear vision. The next but independent section, it's related but independent, it gives an illustration of spiritual single-mindedness or clarity of vision. Verse 22, the eye of the lamp is the body. So if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, this is an odd phrase. The eye is the lamp of the body. Generally, we think of a lamp, or we could say a flashlight, or a a light of any kind as being the source of light. Now, we know that your eye is not the source of light. It interprets light. But what is Jesus doing here? He's actually using a very familiar metaphorical view of the eye that the Hellenistic world was familiar with. They pictured the eye as containing light. This wasn't their actual belief in the physiology of the eye, but the, the metaphorical idea is that the eye contains light. It shoots light outward to whatever you want it to shine on, and then it comes back in. And so it puts the eye in control. Obviously, the eye doesn't produce light, But Jesus is using this familiar metaphor, one that they would have understood. This is the contrast between the good eye and the bad eye. In fact, this is where we get the phrase, he gave him the what? The evil eye. Now, when we say, he gave me the evil eye, we tend to think of a facial expression. But in the ancient Near East, the evil eye was a way of expressing that this guy is greedy. He has an evil eye. He puts his eye on things that he wants. He has an eye to accumulate wealth at all costs. So like the section just before on treasure in heaven, Jesus is once again speaking of a proper view of possessions. The good eye won't look enviously on the wealth of others, won't be obsessed with accumulating. A good eye is not attached to wealth, but able to part with it. 
In the more general sense, though, a clear eye, a healthy eye, the person who sees every single aspect of life through the lens of serving, of delighting in, of pleasing, and to our point today, of trusting the Lord. To that person, there is clarity of sight. As a pastor, one of the things I have to deal with continually, and all of our elders do, is what we might call spiritual cataracts. Spiritual cataracts of professing Christians can be apparent in a false separation between the secular and the sacred. That if you belong to Christ, your whole life is to be sacred. Your whole life is devoted to following Christ. But in American cultural Christianity, we're we're continually fighting back against this false separation, these spiritual cataracts. And let me just give you a few examples of the separation between secular and the sacred. The first one I'll call a therapeutic view of the Bible. A therapeutic view of the Bible. And I think for me as a pastor, almost nothing more saddens me and it saddens me more than to see and to interact with professing believers who have been deceived into believing a therapeutic or a sentimental view of the Bible. That Scripture is nothing more than a, a series of fairly unrelated sayings and stories meant to give me pause to think, meant to give me little life lessons, meant to make me feel something. And sadly and unfortunately, these verses and stories are often compiled into books and collections to give a therapeutic benefit or to engender a momentary feeling. And there's no sense of the grand, no sense of the awe-inspiring, no sense of the awe of God, and certainly not of the whole story of Scripture as every single verse fitting into the overarching redemptive plan of God. A therapeutic view of Scripture. Here's here's another way that separation of secular, secular and sacred happens. An unorthodox practice of the biblical role of women, an unorthodox practice of the biblical role of women. In other words, we'll take the pieces of the Bible that we want, but we're actually going to turn it into an unorthodox practice. I am flabbergasted at how much our culture impacts how we raise children. Parents, I'll just shorten this up. Raise your girls to love a husband and love a family so that our women's ministry doesn't have to undo false idolatrous desires teach them proverbs 31 conveniently we have a whole book on proverbs 31 in our bookstore many churches have pastors and i've spoken to them who are petrified of the thought of preaching wives submit to your husbands from ephesians 5 or be busy at home from titus 2 Here's a third way we get spiritual cataracts we don't have clear vision we don't trust the lord that what his word says is true And that is the practice of eldership. I might add a faulty practice of eldership. I'm convinced that countless elderships operate based in worldly principles of a board of directors. A primarily decision-making body that simply tells everyone else what to do. What does the New Testament say about, about elders though? They're shepherds. They're leaders. They give spiritual instruction and leadership. I'm convinced that the vast majority of elders, if called upon to make a biblical argument, could not do it. And yet that's the skill required of the elder, able to teach, able to defend from Scripture any and every issue. And yet, churches still, because they won't trust the Lord, will put a guy in as an elder because he has a successful business, not because he knows the Word of God. 
How about this one? Secular or sacred? The church as my servant instead of Christ's bride. The church as my servant instead of Christ's bride. Pastors terrified to stand up to the sin of their own church members. Elders huddled in upper rooms strategizing how to keep everyone happy instead of praying for how to shepherd the flock of God effectively. Church services tailored to entertain instead of giving glory to God by engaging your minds and your hearts with Godward thoughts. Pastors trying to use their personalities and ability to engage an audience as as somehow the primary tool of change. If I can just make you laugh enough, that's going to change your life. Pastors trying to coax people into listening to truth instead of creating a culture where listening to truth is expected. I, I never want to try to coax you into listening to truth. We just hit you between the eyes with truth and what you do with it is between you and the Lord. Church members threatening to quit ministries or stop giving or this or that if something doesn't go their way and worse, leaders who respond to that. This is a very secular way of dealing with the sacred, which is the very bride of Christ. Those few examples all boil down to one problem. An evil eye, an unclear eye, spiritual cataracts that cloud the vision of actually trusting the Lord. Actually trusting the Lord. So pray for clear vision. Pray for vision that's looking to obey Christ no matter the seeming cost, no matter how contrary to our culture it seems. At the core of trusting the Lord is the Spirit-empowered determination to obey God without reference, listen, to obey God without reference to any other influence. In fact, the last part of verse 23, if then the light that is in you is is darkness, this is a call to examine yourself. How do you examine yourself concerning things, treasure, and so forth? Here's the standard. James 1, beginning in verse 9, the brother of humble circumstances is to boast in his high position and the rich man is to boast in his humiliation because like flowering grass he will pass away for the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. They both have clear vision. The man of humble circumstances knows that his wealth is in heaven and he has a smile going to the, saying, uh, if I'm saving up in heaven like I'm not saving on earth, then I'm very, very wealthy. And the man of abundant circumstances knows and can smile that my wealth is like a haystack next to a blowtorch. It can go up anytime. And what will I do? I'll just go, well, there it goes. That's glorious. That's a clear vision. There's a third type of prayer to strengthen your trust in the Lord. Pray for true loyalty. Pray for true loyalty. So first, we pray for treasure opportunities. Second, pray for clear vision. And third, pray for true loyalty. That brings us to our third related but independent section in this little triad of teaching here. Verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. I know this is familiar to you, but just to review, in this context, the the idea of hate simply means to love less. It's not the emotion of despising, despite the connotation of the English word used later in that verse. 
It just means that the demands of two masters are incompatible. The master demands devotion. And you cannot be completely devoted to two masters. Inevitably, there will be a favorite. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 37, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. How does this relate to trusting the Lord? Obviously, the master is the master over you, the slave. So how does this relate to trusting the Lord? The main task of the slave of Christ is to give total, whole devotion and loyalty to his king, Jesus. And then the task of the king is to take care of his slaves. It's often been pointed out that the slave owns nothing. The master takes care of him. Either you're a loyal slave of Christ producing heavenly treasure or you're a loyal slave of earthly pursuits producing earthly treasure. And you probably notice there's a little switch here. The the intensity got turned up. The heat got turned up a notch here. There's a switch from third person. No one can serve two masters. And you might say, I, I, I agree with that. The second person, you cannot serve God and wealth. Now, the issue here is not merely wealth. Wealth is the vehicle for the issue. The issue is the absolute, unqualified, trusting, loyal discipleship of the slave of Christ. Loyalty. Wealth is merely the most obvious variable that can distract from true discipleship. It seems from Scripture that it's the very rare person who can possess great wealth and not be enslaved to it or let it even taint the way he views serving Christ. The New Testament warns against potential spiritual dangers of being loyal to great wealth. 1 Timothy 6, beginning of verse 6, Godliness is actually a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evils. And some by aspiring to it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And you're familiar with Hebrews 13.5. Make sure that your way of life is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. What's the common element in both those passages? The love of money, right? Why is this the common element? You can't love money and be loyal to the Lord at the same time. The two cannot exist together. And more broadly, you can't love anything else idolatrously and love the Lord at the same time. They can't exist together. So three types of prayers to strengthen your Trust in the Lord. Pray for treasure opportunities. Pray for clear vision. Pray for true loyalty. I was curious if there was a passage in Scripture that kind of put all that together, and and there is. I'd like to show you a section of Proverbs that speaks to this issue exactly. In fact, it's worth our time to turn to Proverbs 11. Proverbs chapter 11. I want to show you that the one who seeks heavenly Treasure opportunities, the one who has a clear vision concerning where the true treasure is and the one who's truly loyal to the Lord instead of to earthly attainments, he's, he's characterized as someone who does what? Who trusts the Lord. He demonstrates trust. 
Now, just to give you a little background, very often in Proverbs, there are groups of related sayings that help us to interpret that all interpret one another. It's not always a tidy or a neat package, but in Proverbs, proximity is meaningful. When certain Proverbs are clumped together or near one another, it, it's meant to be that way. And I want to show you one of those clumps. Proverbs 11, verse 1. A deceptive balance is an abomination to Yahweh, but a just weight is his delight. What is a deceptive balance? It's a scale rigged by a buyer of gold or silver to cheat the, the seller. In other words, the buyer is motivated by treasure on earth. And by the way, keep in mind, this is not just a general saying. Proverbs is written in the context of the covenant community of Israel. This is the man with no sense of trusting the Lord. Instead, he trusts his own sly ways. Verse 4. Wealth will not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness will deliver from death. Here's a clear salvation warning. That all the accumulated wealth you have cannot help you when you stand before God. Why? Because God doesn't need it and you can't spend it with Him. Again, this is someone who has not trusted the Lord even initially for salvation. Skip down to verse 16. A gracious woman holds fast to glory, but ruthless men hold fast to riches. Oh, this is a terrific contrast here. What is this doing? This is a contrast between the very weakest in the ancient Near Eastern society, a woman against the very strongest in the ancient Near Eastern society, a wealthy man. But the clear implication is she's going to come out ahead. She holds fast to glory. In the context of the covenant community of God, her values are driven by what glorifies the Lord and she will win out. Verse 18. The wicked earns deceptive wages, but he who sows righteousness gets a true reward. This is similar to verse 1, that the one who trusts the Lord sows righteousness. He plants seeds, as it were, of that which pleases the Lord. He gets a true reward. See also treasure in heaven. Verse 24, there is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there is one who holds back what is rightly due and yet results only in want. The one who scatters is the generous person. And the irony is that God always provides for him. He increases all the more. This is, by the way, the exact same principle that Paul gave when he wrote the Corinthian church in, in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 11. It basically says that if you sow uh, richly and, and generously, that God will provide even more for you to be generous. Verse 25, same principle. The soul that blesses will be enriched and he who waters will himself be watered. Same principle. Verse 26, he who withholds grain, the people will curse him, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. This is the picture of a wealthy landowner who provides for his neighbors by selling his grain at a fair price rather than just keeping it all for himself. Why would he keep it all for himself? The only reason that a wealthy landowner in the covenant community of Israel would keep all of his wealth for himself and not reasonably sell it to his poorer neighbors is that's what he trusts in. That he's desperate to hoard everything he possibly can just in case. All those Proverbs I just cited connect a loose hand on wealth with trusting the Lord. They're all connected. 
Now, the whole point of this exercise is to get to the application, the lesson that all those Proverbs point to concerning trust. And here it is. Verse 28. He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. We could say it this way. Here's the counterpoint. The righteous do not trust in their riches. That's the lesson. The life of faith in the Lord, the life of living as the redeemed of God through Christ is a life of daily trusting the Lord. Why? Trusting the Lord begins with the gospel. It's a disposition of confidence. Genuine trust is rooted in the sovereignty of God. Genuine trust is not a conjured up emotion and trust is an expectation of covenant loyalty. I have a challenge for you and it concerns your prayer life. Pray for opportunities to trust the Lord. Pray for opportunities to trust the Lord. Don't waste your life trying to mitigate risk. Don't waste your life trying to create a risk-free environment all around yourself, trying to avoid having faith. Embrace trusting the Lord. Pray for it. Ask the Lord to make you continually walk in places you can't see. There should always be something in your life that you're trusting the Lord for. And listen, he's going to get you one way or another. You might be the most careful person on earth and you're one of those that make it to three seconds before your death and you go, oh, I finally made it. Well, guess what? You got to trust the Lord for the next three seconds, don't you? Don't live a life of mitigating risk. What a waste. Live a life of faith. Start a prayer journal. Page one. Request number one in the will of God. Whatever that is, Page two, here's the answer. Page three, four, five, do that and do that and do that. Don't mitigate risk. Don't try to live a careful Christian life. Take risks. What's the worst that can happen? Well, I'm in heaven. There we go. (laughs) Don't mitigate risk. Don't try to avoid having faith. Embrace it. Pray for it. Pray for opportunities. I know, I know. Well, that's like praying for humility because God will give it to you. Yes. Pray for opportunities to trust the Lord. Now, thankfully, life is so hard, you're probably all already in an opportunity to trust the Lord. Pray for more. Strengthen those faith muscles. What does it mean to trust the Lord? It means to enjoy what we're going to look at in detail next week. And I'd like to close our time just reading to you. And it's right in front of you, but just listen. We're just going to enjoy this. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? 
You have little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Isn't that comforting? Don't avoid risk. Pray to trust the Lord. Our Father, we come to you now thankful for the opportunity to remember the ultimate trust. And that is that we trust Jesus Christ for our salvation. We trust that the price, the penalty that he paid on the cross is sufficient. It is enough. Because we are sinners to an infinite degree and so we have need of infinite salvation. We come now to the high point of our worship. Our Father, we come to you with our heads bowed symbolizing our humility, symbolizing our degradation, knowing that that our sin would have condemned us to an eternity separated from you and yet because of Christ who stood between us and your wrath poured out, we may partake in the heavenly future of a kingdom ruled by your Son. So now we take this moment to obey the Lord Jesus Christ, our King, our Head, our Master, and to remember His broken body and remember His shed blood, the atonement given to us at the cross. We thank You, Father, and ask You to be with us in this time of worship. Amen.